Shalom. Thank you for listening to this podcast of the Jayberg Wilk Learning Series. I am Shmuley Yanklowitz, President and Dean of Valley Beit Midrash. Here at VBM, we strive to bring you only the highest quality of Jewish learning. Bringing pluralistic and innovative Jewish programming to the Jewish community that craves substance and insight is our passion, but we cannot do it alone. To support our endeavors, please consider donating a tax-deductible contribution to our organization. By doing so, you will be supporting meaningful Jewish educational content, funding the next generation of leaders, as well as furthering Jewish wisdom to people all over the country and all over the world. Please visit www.valleybatemadrash.org. Thank you so much and enjoy the program. I spent my life on campus. Um, I've watched um, a, a number of generations come and go. Um, in fact, uh, I now, I'm, I'm actually uh, semi-retired, um, so, um, yeah. <laughs> which means I'm not the director any longer, which is fine. I still work at Hillel, and I still, still teach students, which is my love. Um, and, um, uh, I, you know, I, I've watched the, the politics of campus um, uh, over generations. I've seen uh, changes. And as you know from the saying, you know, uh, with all the changes, it's, it's, it, it's more or less the same. So I can tell you that when I came to UCLA in 1975, uh, one of the first things that I encountered was a, a speech by the PLO representative in a packed ballroom uh, denouncing Israel. Um, so I know that people are, think that uh, we've, we're facing rough times today, and there are some differences, obviously. There are differences and nuanced uh, differences. Um, but uh, the campus was always a place that was for a place of ferment, new ideas and challenges. Um, that's why we, that's why we, uh, we went there. We went there to learn something new that we you know, didn't didn't find back at home. Um, I actually find some. Of, I, I, mean, I I I see some of the reaction today um, to the campus that's I I consider unhealthy. Um, it, not to not not. Not that I don't see the negative things that occur on campus, but uh, university education should be a value. Um, and if there are problems with university education, we should work to correct them, uh, but not reject the university as institution. I hear people talking about that, I'm, I'm, and Jews talking about that. It's kind of unbelievable to me. Um, so we can come back to that a little bit later on. But I do want to contextualize my remarks, and I thought of a number of ways of beginning today. You know, I talk about this, and this is not the first time that I presented this. I try to do something a little different each time, um, and maybe I learn, I try to learn a little bit uh, as I think about it. But I, 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 I do want you, I do want perhaps for you to see the, the current uh, tensions that, that, that exist on campus and also within the Jewish community uh, from, a, from, from a vantage point, from a perspective that I, where there, I would say there are two worldviews that are clashing. And I'll start with a story. Um, years ago, uh, I, I came into my office um, on Cholamoid uh, Pesach, meaning the first in intermediary day of Passover, uh, and I noticed an email that I, that I had received uh, that was sent by a Hillel colleague, um, but the email was sent on the holiday, on Yontif, on Passover. Um, I read the email, and the email reported sort of er, uh, the email uh, 
cried out as an urgent emergency. The emergency was that the Hillel director had received a notice that the following night, which I think was still Yantif, I'm not sure which day of Pesach it was, um, the, the film Occupation 101 will be uh, featured uh, on campus. And he was looking to hear whether any of his colleagues had any familiarity with the film um, and had any suggestions to make that could help him out. Now, I, you know, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not a police force, a religious police force, and I don't insist, and I think that, you know, it's a, it's a principle in Hillel. Uh, we, uh, Hillel uh, accepts uh, rabbis and, and professionals of different levels of Jewish involvement and, 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 and of different observance. It did disturb me, however, that I received an email on the Hillel listserv that was sent by a colleague on the holiday uh, as if this is something that's so urgent that it overrides the concerns of Passover. Um, and I raise this in, 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 some, in, in some circles. Um, and um, it, you know, it, 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 still, it still remains with me. And I, I'd like to sort of unpack and take it apart in a way to illustrate what I mean by saying that there are two worldviews in, con in conflict. Um, and, and, and I ask you to be patient, because I'm not sure that you necessarily will agree with everything that I say. So please you know, be prepared to ask me questions and, and challenge my presentation. Uh, so I, 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 my claim is that we're experiencing a clash of, per of perceptions regarding the state of Jewish life and of Israel that's actually yielding two agendas, uh, two different agendas. The first perspective claims that we're fighting for survival. Anti-Semitism is a vital force on campus, uh, in the community, uh, on campus BDS, uh, boycott, uh, uh, bo uh, wait, boycott, uh, divestment, divestment and sanction movement dominates, and professors are busy indoctrinating our children with a steady diet of anti-Israel and anti-Zionist lies. From a classic Jewish perspective, it's pikuach nefesh. Pikuach nefesh means a life is at stake, our very existence is being threatened, and all of the Torah can be pushed aside for the sake of survival, for sure. The second worldview. Indeed, I wrote this out. I'm not going to read the, the rest of the talk, but I wanted to make sure to write this out. There, there are anti, for sure there are anti-Semites out there. And many intellectuals who, who teach on campus and who, who circulate um, in, in, in that world are alienated from Israel. But the greatest threat to Jewish survival is not anti-Israel propaganda or, um, or anti-Semitism, uh, but Jewish illiteracy. Before they get us, we will self-destruct. Arthur Hertzberg, whom some of you may recognize, I hope some of you recognize the name, uh, once quipped that the reason that Jews are so obsessed with anti-Semitism is that they have a fantasy that at some point they will defeat the anti-Semites and then they won't have to be Jewish any longer. <laughs> so my greatest fear, which is related to this, uh, to this Hertzberg uh, quip, is that uh, one day 
the Jewish students are going to wake up and they're going to say, we defeated the other side. We won. And then they're going to look at one another in consternation and they're going to say, why did we do this? What is it, what is it all about? Because in the process of panicking regarding Occupation 101, we didn't take the time to teach them what Israel means. We taught them how to defend Israel, we taught them how to fight for Israel, but we didn't teach them the details of Israel's history, and we failed completely to expose them to the richness, the rich, ideolo the rich ideologies that comprise and inform Zionism. What do they know about Herzl, Borochov, Rav Kook, Rabbi Reines, Jabotinsky, and certainly not about Achad Ha'am. What do you know about Achad Ha'am? So I had a student a few years ago who came to me, an observant student, a yeshiva graduate, uh, yeshiva elementary school, yeshiva high school. And he said, Rabbi Chaim, Rabbi Chaim. I said, yeah. Do you, have, have you heard of Achad Ha'am? Oh, Ha'am. So I took her into my office and I showed her that I had four volumes of translations of his essays. Oh, she said. So, so I said to her, uh, tell me something. Are you familiar with Arthur Hertzberg's The Zionist Idea? I don't know if you're familiar with it, but in my book, that's the Bible of Zionism. And it should be, uh, you know, it's one, if you're concerned about Israel, you should have some familiarity with it because it presents you with a range of Zionist thinkers, political Zionists, socialist Zionists, labor Zionists, religious, I mean, the whole range. And it gives you a, a firm introduction into the ideological basis for Israel. And to me, ideology is important because ideology is the glue that inspires us to be committed. People who were committed to Zionism and to building the state of Israel saw it as a, as a movement of renewal. And therefore, it sort of grabbed them in their guts. I, I'm, I'm concerned about what the guts of this next generation. They don't have the same guts that you have. They don't react. and they, In other words, they don't have the same instincts. They didn't grow up with the same experiences, right? Not, they, they, they don't even, they don't, not only don't re, they remember, I mean, how they, can they remember? I don't. I was born after the Holocaust. But they certainly know very little about the rise of the state of Israel. They weren't going around collecting like my mother was in the subways in New York City with a, with a pushka connecting pennies uh, uh, for the state of Israel. Uh, they certainly, I lived through the, the, uh, the, the Sinai War, the, uh, the Six-Day War. None of that, all of that is, 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 is ancient history as far as they're concerned, and they have no familiarity with it, N no familiarity with sort of the heroic, uh, the heroic past of the state of Israel. They know Israel as a powerhouse that happens, you know, government uh, with, that's in conflict with the Palestinians. So... So I asked Shana, do you know about this book? She said, no. So I said, all right. I ordered her a copy um, of, of the, this was on a Thursday. On Monday, she comes running into the office, Rabbi Chaim, Rabbi Chaim, it's here. You know, she was so excited, the Hertzberg book. So we looked through the book, and I said, you know, I have an idea. And I, I, have the, I had the ability in those days to offer a, um, a, a course at UCLA that was uh, a one-credit course uh, uh, sort of seminar discussion um, and that was not part of the curriculum. Um, let's write up a description and propose a course on Zionism, which we did. And the course was, the, the way this, this program is structured, um, it's limited to 20 students um, and, and there's no grade, 
but they all had, had an assignment. Each one of them had to take a different Zionist thinker and write a report. Um, and it was a wonderful experience. I wish, I mean, I, it's something that I would, that I would consider doing again. Uh, it was great for me as well as, uh, as, as well as for the students. But it seems to me th this, this is just another indication of how someone who has a very thorough Jewish education, uh, a woman who, by the way, can on her own study Talmud, has no familiarity with the history and substance of Israel, or very little. And she's certainly a very big supporter of Israel, has been there numerous times, but, real, you know, but, but sort of lacks the facility to be able to carry on uh, a conversation about what it mean, you know, what the intricacies and the meaning. Now, apart from not transmitting the meaning of Israel and Zionism, most young Jews are, basic, are, are devoid of basic Jewish literacy. Um, you see, <coughs> the threat is not anti-Semitism, but a piercing challenge that I hear all the time, why be Jewish? That's the, that's the question that many young Jews are asking. We don't have to be Jewish. We're Americans. Now, of course, the, this spate of anti-Semitism may have sort of forced them to, to think about their comfort, but basically... <coughs> They're very comfortable, and they've been embraced by America. You know why there's so much intermarriage in America? The, I, I would say the main reason? Because Jews are loved by Americans. They want to marry Jews. We're an attractive community. You know that in the last five or six years in the Pew study, Judaism emerges year after year as the most, as the most respected religion in America. And you haven't heard, with all this anti-Semitism, have you heard a word about any of the political candidates who are Jewish? About their Judaism being a factor in people's support for them? You're not going to hear anything. It's not an issue in people's minds. So, I mean, some anti-Semites might make it an issue, but, it's not, but it, it, it's, not, it's not an American issue. I mean, we're, we're, we're part of the web of... Uh, and, 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 and intricately woven into this, this America, which has been mo mostly a blessing, a blessing for us. So young Jews are struggling, if at all, to find meaning in why they need to aff affirm their Jewish identity. What compelling teachings and way of life does Judaism offer them? What are we presented to them that makes the life of a Jew distinctive? that they would want to be Jewish. They know they're Jewish, and they're even comfortable being Jewish, but it doesn't add meaning to their life. And that's what, that's what they're looking for. When we talk about Israel, the question is not about political support for Israel, but what meaning does relationship to Israel add to their life? How does it inform their identity and enrich them as Jews and as human beings to have a national identity connected to a state that's thousands of miles away? Right? That, I live that way. I raise my children in Hebrew. Well, Israel pulsates through my veins with all of my politics. That's irrelevant. You know, that's, it, it's, it's part of who I am in a very intimate way. Now, it's, it, that's, not, that's not so easy to transmit. I had parents who were devout Zionists and loved the, loved the Hebrew language. I went to a Hebrew-speaking summer camp, you know, and I was surrounded by all of this. So it's, natu it, it's natural to me. But I, I worry about what's, what's the, 
the, you know, what we're doing with the next generation. Yes, question. Yes, we'll take questions. Yes. So they're saying that the young people today don't need to be Jewish. Well, they don't feel the they need to. Feel. They don't feel the need to be Jewish. Ah, uh -huh, that's a good question. I think that you know the, the single largest and fastest growing group, not the largest, but the fastest growing group in America in these Pew studies that are done frequently are what's called the nuns, and not the N-U-N nuns, but the N-O-N-E-S nuns. And that's, that's the group of Americans who reject religion in general, who say, not reject, but say religion is not important to them. And not important. So that, so we're, we're very, but that, that, that just in many ways supports my contention that Jews are very American. It's a tendency in America to sort of not, to, to see religion as not adding meaning. And to that extent, Jews are, in, uh, are, are consistent uh, with, other, with other young Americans. That's true. All right, so, and, 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 and therefore, we have a lot of work on our, I'm, I'm, not, I, I don't, I'm not claiming to be guiltless, meaning the responsibility lies with the community and with its educators to develop the type of priorities and agenda that, that make being Jewish something significant. The Orthodox community seems to be having some, some type of success. We want, you know, one of the things that uh, is important to be done is to look, to look where there is success. I worked at Hillel all my life, and I, I, did, I'm, I was not a fan of Chabad. For reasons, for ideological reasons, I, you know, uh, one uh, sort of a basic thing is I always question what they were doing on campus. In those days, none of their rabbis had had, had a university education, and they don't value the university. Right. So what are they? Do, what are you doing here? You're not teaching. You know, you're engaging young people, and you say, "Come to us, and we'll take you back to the 18th century." I mean, that's not helpful, Jewishly. How the the task is how young Jews are going to confront the world that they're living in as Jews. That's all we have to prepare. But having said that, all right, I looked over Chabad and I said, what are they doing that's right? Are there things that we can learn? And there's a lot of things to be learned, the warmth, the outreach, the home. So we have to be, we're supposed to be smart, we're strategic. What can we learn from people with whom we disagree sometimes? And, and, and so in, 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 the, in this case, I would say, it, it, you know, it, it, it really, is an imperative that the liberal Jewish community take a look at the Orthodox community and say, are there elements in Orthodox life that are transferable, given the fact that we don't, we, we don't agree necessarily with uh, all the aspects of their religious mode. Nevertheless, we're part, you know, we're, we're part of a community. We, we, we revere tradition in, in, in a way. What can we learn? All right? and, and certainly educationally, there are things to be learned. From, from the system of education. And as I look around the United States, one of the things that's troubling to me is that uh, liberal Jewish education is, 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 is not succeeding. Not that the schools aren't good, but schools are closing. It's because people aren't, uh, you know, they're very extremely expensive. We don't have a mechanism to sustain them. And, and, and anyway, they only, uh, the educational apparatus only addresses a tiny percentage. You know, we need more camps. There are things that we need where we know, we know that summer camps are successful in promoting Jewish life. We need more camps. There, there, you know, there, there, are, there are things that can be done. Okay.
Oh, all right. All right. Hold your question. I'm, I'm going to finish a, a couple sentences and then we'll open it up again. All right. So I, I just want to tell, say that this, these different worldviews also yield different agendas because one agenda is an advocacy agenda. How can you fight against the other side? And the other agenda is what I called um, a, a, an education ag agenda. One is sort of clape chutz, is, you know, how, how are we going to defeat them? The other is uh, an, an, inner, an inner strengthening. And the educator in me says, as a community, and this is sort of the last comment I want to make it in, at this, in this introduction, as a community, we're, we're too dependent, I would say obsessed, with anti-Semitism. It's almost as if we need a dose of anti-Semitism to sustain our Jewish commitment. Ah, Machaya, there are some anti-Semites. In the 90s, it was frightening. There was going to be peace in the Middle East. We don't know how to deal with that. When they hate us, ah, then we, then we know who we are. Uh, now, that's a little bit cynical, but to a certain extent, American Jews have made anti-Semitism into their religion. They don't know any other way to be Jewish. And that's a major reason for the failure of transmitting content and values that would fire up the imagination of the, next, of the next generation, because, in, not only because, the, you know, that, that's not a, a curriculum that promotes uh, positive identification, but also because young Jews just can't be convinced that anti-Semitism is the real threat that, that we think it is, because their experience is contrary to it. Some of them would even laugh at, at that assertion. I don't know if they do in these days. These days, it's more difficult to do that. But still, still, they've been so accepted and so embraced by the general American population. And, and we know that you can't be a, 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 a candidate for high political office in the United States if you don't have a Jewish relative. Because even, I don't know whether you know this, do you know that, that Michelle Obama's cousin is the leading African-American rabbi in America? Yes. Yes. Right, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So, so, I mean, you know, even, even on, on the ethnic side, in that way it's amazing. You know, I look at assimilation as troubling as it is. There are two sides to assimilation. The sociologists will say that assimilation is very healthy because it helps create an integrative society. The Jew in me says, I used to teach this in my classes, you know, the rabbi in me says it's a catastrophe, you know, and, and uh, but, but uh, so, so uh, I, I also, I, I look and see, and see what we've achieved. And I remember that years ago there was, a, I, I read Jean-Paul Sartre, Sartre's Anti-Semite and Jew, and Sartre, who was a very smart observer of the world, made a terrible, drew a terrible conclusion which was that the anti-Semite creates the Jew. It's terrible because it completely robs us of all agency. It means that we have no self-perpetuating capacity, that a Jew is a product of the person who hates the Jew, which seems to imply that if Jew hatred were to, be, were to diminish, you know, in, like, like Hertzberg's quip, then, you know, the Jews could disappear because there would be no one against them. But that means that Judaism doesn't have the mechanism the ex there's nothing exciting about being Jew Jewish that's worthwhile sustaining. It's only worth sustaining because someone's against me. 
We can't deliver that as a message. We've made that too much of a centerpiece in our self-promotion. Okay, a couple of questions, please. Uh-huh. And I propose that not only should we perhaps look at other segments of our own community. But other other communities. Other communities. Yeah. Because when I came to the United States, I found an amazing difference between Canadian Jews and American Jews. Canadian Jews are Jewish Canadians. Mm -hmm. And American Jews are American Jews. They're not Jewish. Canadians have a very strong Zionist thread running yes. through that whole culture and are very much more Jewish in the way they think and behave and teach yeah. So, so I, I might say that Canadians are, are, are one or two generations behind the Americans they, they, so. because in, in the process. And also the nature of the society is different. But, 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 but you're right. You're right. You're right. You know, I, I, I heard recently, uh, I heard a talk by Jonathan Sachs, and he talked about that what he considers to be his signature accomplishment over his years. I don't know if this was all due to his efforts in England. But there's now a very high percentage of Jewish young people who are schooled in, who go to Jewish schools and who have a solid Jewish education. I forget what, what the percentage is, but it far exceeds anything that we have here in America. Right? And that makes a difference. And I remember years ago, the South American communities that were involved, with, with, there was a Machonama de Chutzlaritz that was run by the Jewish agency, and how the South Americans were sending you know, busloads of young people students who spoke Hebrew. They, they were raised to speak Hebrew in Argentina, in Brazil, and so on. And that, very different from, let's say, our American experience where nobody, no children learn how to speak Hebrew in Hebrew schools. A total failure of American system and, of, and, and a decision made by the rabbis not to demand that young Jews know Hebrew. You know, that was a decision that was taken, that it's sufficient. Uh, and, now we, and now we conduct our, in law, our entire lives in translation. We're the first Jewish community in history that, that, that's attempting to sustain itself without a Jewish language. Well, right? We used, to we used to have a We always had a Jewish language. Yiddish, Ladino, Jude Judeo-Arabic. We wrote Arabic and Hebrew. The Rambam wrote the Guide of, of the Perplexed in Arabic, but in Hebrew letters. And, and it was a Hebraic Arabic. Hebrew... Uh, you know, uh, there, there was a uh, Hebrew inflection in, in the Arabic and Hebrew words. Um, so uh, we, we, we it, it's very hard to sustain an identity without a language. I don't, I don't know if it can be done, actually. Very, because, because language it, it sort of is, uh, gives, gives, gives identity some, uh, some, 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 a focal point, a distinctive focal point. A cultural, a distinctive cultural focal point that I think is might be might be essential. Yes, I totally agree with you that um, um, Jews, especially on campus, don't don't feel it's important. To, I I believe they don't feel it's important to be Jewish. They don't. My sense is that they don't feel that it's important to love Israel. And True. To, um, well, it goes hand in hand. It's important that there is an Israel. Some of them don't even think that it's important that there is an issue. Correct, correct. And it's very, very disturbing. 
My question is why? Is it the parents didn't do a good job in training their children? Is it the rabbis didn't do a good job? I mean, why, why, was this, why is this generation so different than our generation? When I, when I grew up, there was no question. So, so, you know, you have to think to yourself. In, in our generation, we still understood that Israel... Beyond, you know, in addition to what, um, when I talk about ide- Zionist ideology, I'm going to get to it in a moment, we needed Israel, and that Jews need a refuge. I would argue they still do. All right, they don't, young, Jew, young American Jews don't, don't, don't feel that that's necessary. Wait, wait, till, wait till the next episode. All right, all right, okay. Yeah. All right, so, you know, uh, so, 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 so they, you know, so it's, it, 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 I, but that, but again, they have a deeper question, because what they're saying is, waiting till the next Hitler comes around is not a sufficient reason for myself to being engaged in this project. I'm comfortable because I've made my life here, and there's a lot. And and not only that, I've been. This country has opened its doors to me, and and, and given me in this generation access. There are no barriers, like there were. I remember. I mean, I'm I'm a little younger than well, or we're, maybe we're the same age. But I, I mean, I I know the first professor. I, I have to get used to that. <laughs> so I I I know the first Jewish professor in the English department at UCLA. Of course, the English department in English departments universally discriminated against Jews because you had to be an Anglo-Saxon. To, you know, and, and Jews only became Anglo-Saxons when they go to I- American Jews when they live in Israel. Then they're called Anglo-Saxons. <laughs> but 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 uh, but no no. So 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 I there there was discrimination. And UCLA, which was a progressive and open campus, it was a type of gentlemanly discrimination that had to be overcome. Uh, not like at Emory, by the way. If you know, recently they discovered that a whole class in dentistry was failed of Jews, was failed by the professor. And, and, and now the university tried to make amends, and in hindsight, it was granted. You know, they all went on to dental school elsewhere. They, they, it's not that they were deficient in their scholarship and in their abilities, uh, academic abilities, but they had a, a professor who wouldn't graduate Jews. And, 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 and one student didn't know about, didn't know about the other student. In those days, they were, it was all quiet, and they didn't talk about. They didn't have a Jewish organization. All of a sudden, a group of Jews discovered that a university discriminated against them in, in a particular school. So we 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 we've gotten past all of that, you know. That, you know, Baruch Hashem, the the Ivies. I mean, I, you know, when I, I, part of my next the next phase is what I'm, what do I mean by the best of times. There's not a university. There's not an Ivy League school in the past generation that hasn't had a Jewish president. We're talking about schools that used to re- discriminate, have quotas re- regarding Jews. The numbers of Jewish professors proliferate all over the all over the country. Jewish studies programs at universities, the best universities, have professors of Jewish history. UCLA has a professor of Jewish music, the Mickey Katz Chair in Jewish music. They just scheduled at UCLA an entire festival, sponsored by Lowell Milken, just on Sunday of a varieties of American Jewish music, including Klezmer. I went to a concert on Saturday night at one of the synagogues that's sort of co-sponsored by UCLA um, uh, of, uh, what was it, Mount, uh, called Mountain Nefesh. Uh, it's, it's uh, what do you call it, the bluegrass, Jewish bluegrass. It's unbelievable. 
one, to, to a Jewish couple from, from New York City. And, and so, no, so UCLA is sponsoring a festival. There's a chair in Hol Holocaust Studies. I actually had a hand when UCLA established its chair in Holocaust Studies. It was maybe the first in the country to do so. So we worked with survivor organizations years ago in doing that. And, and for, for, for 20 years, the most prominent scholar of Holocaust Studies maybe in the world taught at UCLA, Saul Friedlander. I don't know if you know, he won, he won a Pulitzer Prize for, 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 for the book that he wrote about. He was the first historian to include uh, uh, diaries, diaries of Jews as historical documents because historians were reluctant to accept the, the, the testimony of, of survivors uh, and, uh, as be, uh, f because they questioned their accuracy. But he included their testimony, the Yiddish writings, in his, write, in his work, and it, 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 it's considered to be a great piece of history based on first-hand accounts, a very different perspective than written by, by many of the, of, the, of the other historians. And I can go on and on talking to you about how many Hillel buildings have been built in, in, in the last generation, I don't know, 30, 40, not, 60, 90 new Hillel buildings all over the country, thriving communities. Uh, on many, on the best campuses, not on all campuses. I mean, in other words, it's no longer uh, 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 a, an exception to tell you that at a good Shabbat at UCLA, there are two or three hundred students who come for dinner, right? Uh, and there are places where that it happens not on a good Shabbat, but every Shabbat. You know, uh, they, the, the, a New York Jewish newspaper did a study of the best campuses for Jews and the worst campuses for Jews. And you know what they found? It was the same campus. <laughs> it was Columbia. It was Columbia. Now, I happen to know a little bit about Columbia because I spent the Shabbat there with my son when we looked at campus. I was overwhelmed. There were 350 people, young people, at Minion on Shabbos morning. I, I was, I, you know, I, I, know, I know Jewish, I know, you know, yeshiva graduates. A lot of them like to sleep in on Saturday morning. You know, they didn't, they were away from home and so on. Three hundred and fifty on on Shabbat morning. The campus is is filled with Jewish activities, and you can earn a doctorate in Jewish. And has the oldest Jewish history program in the country. Coselo Baron was a professor of Jewish history at Columbia. Hertzberg taught at Columbia. Uh, I mean, I'm not talking about Jewish historians who were alienated from Jewish life. People who were involved in involved professionally and also as intellectuals involved, involved in Jewish life. They were, they, 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 they were at Columbia, and Columbia also has a Department of Middle Eastern Studies with people who are anti-Israel. That's true. And whether it deserves to be considered to be the most anti-Semitic, I mean, I, I, think, I think that's an exaggeration. Let me just say one other thing. We're in the generation of birthright. How many thousands of Jewish students have had an opportunity to take a free trip to take a free trip to Israel? So I mean, you know, just looking around, the opportunities that that are presented uh, to students. I, I look. I, I mean, the Hillel. Even in the last few years, when I've ceased to be uh, uh, involved on a day-to-day -day basis, I see more fellowships, more internships in Israel in the United States available to students. There are, there's now, through the Hillels, a Jewish learning initiative. Now, it's very basic, but it's certainly a, it's certainly a, step, a step forward. 
And as I said, I don't want you to lose the fact. And if it's not Hillel, so I, you know, I, I'm, I can allow myself to say it. So there are Chabads that are doing well. You know? and, and, and there are Chabads in the East Coast that are residential. There's one or two residential Chabads. Uh, you know, so, uh, uh, wow. There's a, the Hillel, I think, at Rutgers ha- runs a residence. Uh, 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 and the Hillel in Florida State run- runs a residential building as well. Um, and, and you have Hillel, by the way, it's not just here in the United States, there are Hillels all, all over the former Soviet Union. So Jewish campus life is alive and well. That's one side of the story. There was another question here. Well, yes. I, was, I, I had a comment. Um, uh, this synagogue is welcoming Sarah Hurwitz. Ah. Um, uh, she's coming here to speak. So in preparation, many of us are reading her book, and she, she talks to your point Basically, as you know, she's a 40-something-year-old. Very, She was raised Jewish and at 12, or, uh, 11 years old, she said, I hate going to Hebrew school. I don't want to be Jewish. Why, why be Jewish? And now, um, in, in her later years, she's... She's looking, rediscovered yeah, Judaism. She's rediscovered, and she's rediscovered why. You know, and she's, she's questioning why it survived. What, was, what is so great Special about it. Yeah, and it's a wonderful, wonderful... I don't know, the, but you know, if you remember, tell her... Tell her I want to meet her. I don't know. I don't know if she lives in. Does she live in L.A. or she lives in New York? I think Washington. Washington. Yeah, Washington. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. She, she was a speechwriter for Michelle. Obama. Yes. Correct. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. Right. She's coming here April fifth. Ah. Okay. Yes, sir. It seems to me the disengagement for the Jewish youth is no different than the disengagement for the American youth, and by that, and it all, to me, it all comes from the same premise. Mm. We've really given them nothing to be proud about. 
to give people a new oppor- an opportunity and to struggle against those da- you know those the, the, the communists you know you ha- yeah, there was a sense of excitement and 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 the result was that people left and they had they had a new life and now in the last number of years I've been involved in what's called limud for former for, for for the former Soviet Union so now we're sort of offering education so you're right there were there were met, there were things that we could sort of latch onto that added meaning to our lives and allowed Judaism or our values to speak to larger issues. Now, uh, I, I, I would like to add to what you said. On top of this, this absence, what we have given them is a sense of entitlement, and 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 uh, you know, and 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 we've and and they haven't had to struggle for anything in the way in which we did that. In some ways, that's good. That, but it's but but it it. You know, it's one of the points I, want to, I, I was going to make later on, and that is in terms of how I view the campus, very few people talk about this. There's a type of mediocritization that has set in to American-born Jews. They're no longer as excellent as they once were. The Jews who are excellent are immigrants and children of immigrants. You know, the Persians that I see, the Israeli students. The Ameri- my wife teaches in the medical school at UCLA. There are no Jewish students that she sees Persian Jews. There are almost no American Jews who are studying medicine. Medicine is not as remunerative a field as it is. But we're, we're, uh, the next generation is not going to be as dominant as it was in academics as the prior generation. We also valued, we valued education. You know, we saw of education not just because it was the mode of entry into American society, we actually saw education as opening worlds for us. And we pursued it with a vengeance. And we, we honored and respected people who had, uh, who had achieved educationally. It's no longer a, as great a value in Jewish life. I think, I think we've become a little soft. We're very successful. We're very successful. This is a price you pay for, this is a price you pay for success. I, I mean, I don't want to belittle it. You know, but... I, I wonder how you light a fire when 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 you know when the when you know it's it's kind of sputtering at this at this point because there's nothing driving us. Part of the drive also, see, it, it was a combination of achievement and survival. It wasn't just survival, but it was also not just achievement. You know, they, they work together and they work off of one another. So one part of the engine is not running for us at all because young American Jews no longer feel the struggle for survival. Uh, and and, 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 and they, they also you know, don't, don't feel that they have to struggle for a place in American society. All the country clubs accept us. So, right, so, so what, what, you know, what, 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 what for? But Dershowitz, you know, Dershowitz, I, I, know, I know I grew up with him. I mean, he's, he's actually older than I am. But, 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 he, but he also, he wrote that first book, Chutzpah, which was, re, which was about fighting, you know, fighting is the way to be Jewish. It, you know, it, 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 I don't know, I, I, I know this, that when I get involved in politics, it's not good for me, and I have done some bad things. I know, I mean, I mean that, I... I I, not, it's not that I mean that I'm, that I'm not political, but the fight isn't what it's all about. All right. And uh, yes, there was another hand. Yes, please. To speak to your point about the students saying 
why 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 be Jewish? Be Jewish. Maybe they just are tired of being told that the reason to be Jewish is because. Sorry, Alan. Waiting. Wait till the next Hitler comes. They don't want to hear right. about about that. They don't want that to be the reason for being Jewish. Is you know we've got we're we're that that Israel's because of the Holocaust and we've got to do this because of the Holocaust and it just becomes irrelevant to them because they don't want to hear it. So that's that, not a positive. So that thing. so 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 one of one one primary principle of 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 Israel education is that people learn that Israel is not because of the Holocaust. The Holocaust is a factor in the decision to support the creation of the State of Israel by the United Nations, for sure. But Zionism predates, predates Israel, right? And not, not to claim, you know, that the Bible is Zionist, Zionism is, is a modern movement, but it draws on ancient ideas that are modernized and that it has deep roots within Judaism and this dream of, of some of sovereignty is something that persisted throughout Jewish history so uh, uh, now the, 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 the point is what do you achieve you know the what do you achieve when you have a sovereign nation you know so David Hartman was my teacher David Hartman was really my mentor and you know so David Hartman said and and you know uh, that when uh, a, a Judaism outside of the nation-state, is a Judaism that's what I would call, I'm using my own words, small Judaism, small-minded. Because the questions that rabbis confront, the Judaic questions that they front, have to do with the details of, of, of ritual observance. And that becomes the substance of what Judaism has to say. But in the state of Israel, Judaism is big Judaism because you're dealing with a Jewish state. So the question of democracy is a Jewish question. The question of, do you sell arms to oppressive regimes? It's a moral issue. So, so you know, it, it, Israel has something to live up to, which is the Jewish tradition, not orthodoxy. I'm talking about the values of Judaism that persisted through generations. Read Achad Am. Achad Am, you know, Hertzberg calls him the agnostic rabbi. So he, he and his buddies would sit around on Shabbos afternoon, you know, smoking cigars and learning Gemara with one another, or learning the Rambam. So he, he wasn't, it, it wasn't orthodoxy, but he understood that there was an ethic in Judaism, and that the creation of a Jewish nation-state was an opportunity for those ethics to, be, to, to play a role. Now, it doesn't mean that Israel is going to do everything right, but it means that the voice of ethics is going to be heard, so that the struggle to see what it means to create a state on those principles, to me, to me, that's a very exciting. That's a very exciting project. That's something I want to. I want to get involved in. Something I can teach to. I can. Uh, I, 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 I can somehow. I, I can feel that as part of the the enriching of my identity. I relate to it, even when you know, even in the in the present day, where I see a lot of sort of cynical politicians who run the show. You know, the, I, I happen to be a part of a group of rabbis. I think Shmuley, yeah, Shmuley, it's the organization that Shmuley started, that participated in proposing to the Knesset a, a, a rule about limiting arms sales to governments that use them to kill innocent pop, their innocent population. You know, Israel was selling uh, arms to Myanmar. You know, there was a genocide. In, or you know, the, you know, uh, it, it, it's problematic. 
And they don't need that business that badly. I mean, you can not, you can argue with me that you know China is a big uh, uh, a big customer. Um, so, I, but I don't you know I don't make those decisions. Those are larger decisions than I do. But what's important is that the, the rabbis had a voice. They didn't make the decision. They made a proposal. The, po the, the, the politicians have to deal with it. You know, Israel, Israel's dealing with questions that we're dealing with here, asylum seekers. How does, a, how does a society of Jews deal with refugees? We had an episode that Menachem Begin welcomed the Vietnamese boat people. You remember that? And Israel was very proud of that. Uh, of that. So now, nowadays, we have a much a stickier problem. So how, how do they negotiate that? So that so that was a, that's so the state of Israel becomes a focal point to see does Judaism work when we put when push comes to shove uh, 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 it's it's a type of you know it's a type of test case on all these principles that we teach our kids in Hebrew school right we tell we tell them justice is the principle of Judaism okay but here in America we don't have the we don't have the political uh, opportunity to really enshrine justice other than to be part of the American system. In Israel, we have an opportunity to do it as Jews. Ah, that's one, uh, that's one avenue. That's where I find, my, I find a lot of fulfillment. I could tell you some other things about what's going on in Israel uh, creatively, other than startup nation. In other words, it's not just a business. You know, and and, and, and I, I think it's a mistake because Silicon Valley is pretty, it seems to me, is pretty successful, and there are a lot of Israelis in Silicon Valley. So I don't know, you know, that you can point to Israel as so unique. It's true that it's concentrated and it's achieved, but you know what's happened in Israel? It's developed an economy that's very similar to the American economy. There are a group of people who are very wealthy and a group of people who are lagging behind. And, they, and there was a full-page article in the New York Times this Sunday about the educational system and the health system. Infrastructure is suffering in Israel. This is a society that prided itself with, with an education that was available to all. Now, that doesn't, the excellent students will continue to be excellent, and people who come from privileged backgrounds will be able to buy supplementary education. But the school systems in Israel are, are deficient. And this, this has been known for years. It's not a new thing. The day is shorter. If you, uh, the, the classes in, in, in you know, they're the, 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 the usual problems. Overcrowded. So... Uh, you, you have a, a, a society that's bifurcated and polarized on that regard. It, it, it's, a, it, it's a problem. You know, uh, the Israel of the 50s was a poorer Israel and a much more, there was much more egalitarian Israel and much more, and much more idealistic. You can't preserve, listen, after a while you can't preserve those same ideals. But you're right, there has to be something that's engaging, that tells us there's something special going on. That, 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 that we want to be involved with, or, 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 maybe, maybe, maybe that arm of Zionism or of Judaism, or Zionism, that said that the project was to create a nation like all other nations, is the meaning of Israel, and it's just a nation state. And if it's just a nation state, then maybe it doesn't have any claims on you. It's just another country. You happen to have relatives there, so we care maybe a little bit more about it. But in terms of meaning, it's just, you know, and, and a country is a country. It's an apparatus. Countries, per se, are not places of value, right? They're governments. They, they operate with principles of self-interest, you know, and, and survival, like, like, uh, like, like many politicians.
usually, usually. So is Israel going to be like every other nation in the world? Or do we still believe that it's something special? And how do we represent, how does it represent that specialness? And how does it attract people to accept the idea that it's something special? When it seems, appears not to be. Yes. Yeah, I'm really more interested in um, Judaism in America than Judaism in Israel. Um, You're worried about Judaism in America? Yeah. Something good to worry about. Yeah. No, yeah, no, no, I'll, ta- I'll, I'll say something more. Yeah. Um, it seems to me that when I speak to my friends, and I speak to actually myself 20 years ago, um, my reasons for being Jewish, and when I hear them, for me, cultural and are very thin in terms of intellectually. Uh, they, they have some association that Judaism means you're liberal. I don't know where that comes from in Jewish learning. Um, and this is part of the suppression for you. So, uh, and the idea that, you know, why? We're, we're Jewish because uh, we win a lot of Nobel Prizes and those accomplishments. But it really comes down to why, which is very bad reason to be Jewish. It does not appeal to their ideals. That's right. Um, now, when yep. I came back to Judaism in terms of got involved in Torah study, I was I was kind of I was like that actually twenty years ago. Um, when I came back to it and started to study Judaism, uh, I I think is very attractive if our children knew it, particularly our idealistic children. Mm. And I'm most interested in our idealistic children. I'm, I'm not all that interested in those that are not. Um, so I think we live in America. One of the things we live in, and Rabbi Kleinberg talked about um, a symphony. Um, so, you know, we are in a multicultural society. Mm-hmm. Our, many of our children go to the university, and they're exposed to a wide range of music, of ideas. They have no idea where Judaism fits in that orchestra. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's on us, I think. Uh, I think that's on us. Um, I don't know where it comes from. I don't think it's about Hebrew. I think it's about the ideas. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, yeah. And my question for you is, has there ever been any studies on the relationship between the parents' deeper knowledge of Judaism um, and their children's um, involvement in, in Jewish so, so, Judaism? Yeah. Uh, so I, I, I don't know a direct answer to that, but I want, I'll tell you a story that I'm going to comment about about your question. Uh, it's a story that, about something that happened in Israel, but it's related to your to your observation. The first birthright trip that I accompanied uh, was the fir- in the first year of birthright, when, when it started. Uh, we went, we had a, a meeting, a mifgash, a special encounter, uh, with uh, students at the leading high school in Tel Aviv. It's called Tichon Chadash. Sort of like the music and art of Tel Aviv. Uh, the students put on a performance for us. I mean, this is a while ago. This uh, birthright's maybe, um, has already made 10, 12, 
maybe, I think, um, more than 15 years, right? So they put on a performance, you know, they were wearing those mics around and, and they were and, and doing a West Side Story type scene. You know, I was standing in the back of the room and I was saying, saying to myself, I literally said that to myself, what would Herzl say? And there were tears in my eyes. Wow, you know, that's amazing. You know, look at, where, look at, at Israel. All right. Then we sit down for the meeting and you know, start a conversation. So the president of the class, uh, the, Isra the Israeli who was president of the class, who had spent some time in the United States, gets up and says, before we start our conversation, I have one thing to tell you. I have an announcement to make. And then she says, I'm not Jewish. You know, so I say, God, we came all the way to Israel <laughs> for this encounter. You know. And by the way, she didn't mean that she's not Jewish. She's born Jewish. She means she doesn't identify as a Jew. She's an Israeli. You know, and so, you know, so I said to the group, I said, tell me something. And there were a group of five or six of, these, uh, of, of Israeli students who were meeting the UCLA students, and they were all the, the best in their class, leaders. They spoke English well. They were highly uh, intelligent. So I said, tell me something. Is there anything that you think you share in common with these American Jews? And I'm not talking about the Holocaust and, and, and Jewish persecution. Positive, something positive. And they had nothing positive to say. And, and what's related to you is the following. The principal then told me that they were introducing a new program. They were, in, they were working with the Hartman Institute. Because I, I understood something in the conversation, that they had this terrible reaction to Judaism. To Jude, Judaism meant coercion to them and the rabbinate. And so they were completely alienated. And that they, these very bright Israelis, didn't know and have any familiarity that on the Talmudic page, rabbis are arguing with one another. And when I said that to one of them, they said, wow, rabbis argue with one another. And we're invited to have differences. That's, 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 that's compelling. We haven't exposed people to the richness of a tradition with, I mean, when you talk about argument, I'm talking about divergent views from the very beginning. Michael Walzer wrote this wonderful article once about, I don't know if you know who he is, he's a leading political philosopher. Um, and he, taught at, taught, he taught at Harvard, and he, he said that, you know, at, at, the grand, uh, at, the, at, at the greatest American kolel of all, the Institute for Advanced Studies at Princeton, you know, it's the, it's the yeshiva of yeshivas in, in, in higher education. You know, where Einstein was for many years. Um, and Walzer wrote an article about the different law codes in the Bible. Very interesting. In the book of Exodus, in the book of Leviticus, and the book of Deuteronomy, there are three different law codes. And some, and some laws in these codes actually differ with one another. So Walzer has this insight. He says, rather than, you know, see this, well, it's different, different sources. Okay, that's a, you know, sort of critical... Uh, perspective, he says, wow, back in the Bible, the Bible presents an argument between different traditions. How interesting that in the fundamental foundational document that's attempting to, to ground Judaism in God's revelation, there's more than one point of view on the same subject. Usually people are trained to think God revealed the Torah, there's one truth. So we have a tradition that's willing to at least to tolerate, more than tolerate, to celebrate 
multiple, multiple truths. And the, that's not just the rabbis. You know what the, so you know what the rabbis say. Elu ve'elu divrei Elohim chayim. These and these are the words of the living God. The words of Shammai and the words of Hillel. Even though they are contradictory. They're actually not contradictory, they're complementary. Because they enrich our understanding from different vantage points. That's a worthwhile tradition, it seems to me, inviting people. That's what Har- that's, that, was, that was one of the attractions to Harman. He invited people to participate in this conversation that's ongoing. Well, I'm saying, how could an idealistic, smart Jewish kid not be attracted to that? So, so the, you asked me about parents. So let me say the following. I, I don't know of any study. What I, what I do know is that in prior generations, we relied on other elements to sustain Jewish life. There was the neighborhood. There were the smells, the foods. There was the bubba who was in the house and who spoke Yiddish. You know, and, and, and there was something instinctive about sustaining Jewish life and that you were, you were drawn to. But that wanes over time. And it's, it, it, it's it, it, uh, uh, groups that are, uh, especially in America, uh, one of the differences between America and, 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 um, and Canada to that extent is that the American uh, uh, phenomenon is one with a great pressure for people to be identified in, 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 to the, in the general culture, right? And, 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 well, what, you know, the American culture, right? At one point, being American also meant being a member of a church, you know, I, I assume, you know, so it wasn't, not just, but, but you know, to, to, be, to, be, to be American, and, and, and it takes its toll on, on uh, because the other thing that I find to be exciting, and that, and that is, a, is a, what do you call it, a, a, um, a standard bearer, a Jew, you know, it's a significant dimension, seems to me, of a Jewish outlook, is that we think that it's possible to be Jewish and democratic, to be Jewish and American, right? We understand that there's a tension between those elements, we, but we understand fundamentally that we have particular commitments and that we have universal commitments simultaneously, that we're not limited to one aspect of our identity as Jews. So there's multiculturalism in Judaism. And recently what we're discovering is that there are, uh, something that we should have known, there are Jews of color who are adding a whole new dimension to, Ju- to Jewish life that, I th- that, that, that's enriching. Now you talk about, you mentioned music before. If you, you know there's a revolution in Jewish music going on in Israel. A spiritual renewal emerging from, you know from where? From the Eastern tradition, from what we used to call Sephardic Mizrahi Jews. They're having their moment of, re, of, of revenge on Ben-Gurion. Because, <laughs> no, because the Ashkenazic, the Ashkenazic Zionist um, uh, 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 establishment suppressed that Eastern tradition as being primitive. Right? That, was, that was an attitude. And, um, a, a, but, a, and moreover, they were sort of all channeled into schools 
that promoted this idea of secular Zionism, but they came from traditional homes. You know that Eastern Jews have something over, they, they have something that's significantly more successful than our approach. They don't have any denomination. They're not fighting between Orthodox and Syrian Reformed Jews, you know. They're Jews, and they have levels, and they're traditional. And, you know, it used to be the old joke that they went to shul on Shabbos morning and to the football game in the afternoon. And the rabbi sat in the stands with them. <laughs> at the football game, at the end of the game, he made Havdalah. <laughs> something, 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 something like that. All right, no, no but, but in other words, it, 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 they've also gone through their troubles because the, the Haredi world has had an influence on some of the Sephardim, but nevertheless... You hear, I, I listen to the music, you have rock stars who are, are adopting the chants of their Moroccan grandparents. Mm -hmm. and, and, and the music is the beat of the music. I mean, I listen to it at home. Before, before, before Rosh Hashanah this year, something went viral. Yishai uh, uh, um, Rebo, uh, uh, he's a rock star in Israel. He did a, a cut that was devoted to the high priest service on Yom Kippur. It was moving and magnificent, and it was and and people were sharing it. It was a, there was an article in tablet tablet, you know. And I was just, I was in Israel in December. I bought four four CDs of his music, you know, because wow. So it's so there's there's cultural life. Now we have creative culture here in America, as well. I mean that's a that's a whole other question, you know whether. We have the ability here to sustain it. Um, that's that's also one of the attractive things about Israel, that uh, that I think Israel is going to be a more successful experiment in su in sustaining modern Jewish life. You know, uh, with all of its problems, um, and 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 more 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 su and, and 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 here here the the you know orthodoxy orthodoxy is going to survive and be very <laughs> and be very rich. Uh, I, I mean that, uh, uh, I, you know, in, in, all, in all aspects, actually. Um, all right, let, let me, you know, it's late. Uh, let me say a few words about campus anti-Semitism, because we've talked in general about these issues. And I, so, because I, I do have a, a sort of a, a particular angle. Let me give you a little bit of a historical survey and talk about the contemporary issues, how things have changed. So, and, and I'll skip time. So I'll, I'll start with, you know, with, with the middle. In, the, in 1982... Everything changed for Israel on campus. In 1979, I remember after the, the Egyptian-Israeli peace treaty, I, I, I was able to convince 300 Jewish faculty members to sign an ad in the UCLA Jewish newspaper congratulating Israel for achieving peace with, with Egypt. And, and I remember Jewish students looking, looking at, the, at, the, at the newspaper and saying, oh, I didn't know they were Jewish. In other words, professors were willing to emerge publicly at a university as Jews. That was, by the way, not so common because one of the unwritten rules about American universities until, until, until the, the later generation was that you park your ethnicity and your religious identity at the door. Because at the university, there's a universal identity. You're, you're a university professor. That's the religion of the university. And, and you, don't, you don't display your particularity in public. It's, diff it's a little different now, but it, it, was, it was certainly tr true then, not on, I mean, not only of Jews, of all, of, all, of all ethnics. 
When we had a problem between blacks and Jews, and I, I had an ongoing group of Jewish faculty, I was looking for African-American faculty to bring into conversation and to help deal with the issue. And so I, I knew a couple of professors. They said, there's no organization. We don't get together. So I organized the African-American faculty. Because I, I wasn't afraid. I mean, they, you know, there were administrators at UCLA who wondered you know, why I had to be so public. You know, uh, be a little quiet. You know, I, I don't know that. I was born in Borough Park. I don't know how to be quiet. <laughs> you know, so um, right, so uh, so 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 you had a sense of pride in what happened in Israel, and I, on on the other side, Jewish students until 1982 were involved in coalitions. With uh, I remember when I came to UCLA, I learned something. There was something called the Third World Coalition. Jews were together with all the historically persecuted groups on campus in a political coalition that advanced their, their candidates uh, in, in student government elections and worked jointly on community projects and, so, uh, oh, and, and social justice to a certain extent, etc. In 1982, Menachem Begin visited Los Angeles. There was a, a General Assembly of the Federations and there was a demonstration against Israel at UCLA and the Palestinian speaker, whom I knew, a graduate student, organized the demonstration. All the ethnic groups lined up with the Palestinians against Israel. And the Jewish students were hanging out the windows of the student government building, and, and they felt betrayed. I saw this as a watershed. I mean, I, was, I remember that I was, I was beside myself, because I, I saw the world, the world sort of, sort of ch changing. And the new coalition that developed was a coalition that, was, that prided itself in being the coalition of oppressed minorities. Judaism had now graduated, or the Jews and Israel, from the oppressed minorities to the oppressor of minorities, and no longer had a place in, in, that, in that coalition. The guiding principle of that coalition was victimhood. And Jews were not perceived as victims. There was a professor at UCLA, an anthropologist, who wrote a book called When Did Jews Become White People? And so Jews were now white. They were part of the privileged white majority. This already started, this already started in the 80s. This is now you know, currency on campus um, and, and plays a role in, in, in the exclusion of Jews. Jews were transformed from being victims to being victimizers. And they needed new coalition partners. Who became the coalition, the natural partners of, the, of Jews who had graduated from their former status? Excuse me? Well, before the Christians, that, that's true, but before, that's, but not in, not in that early phase. The earliest phase, and to this very day, the fraternities. You know, I, I smile, because I've, I've never been a big supporter of fraternities. I always, you know, people used to say, Chaim, keep quiet. No, because at a place like UCLA, 20, nowadays, 20% at least of the fraternity population and sorority population is Jewish, maybe more. But, it, but what ha started to happen is that fraternities that used to discriminate against Jews now prided itself that it was, that it was accepting Jews. It reminds me, you know, of, 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 of letters. I got a letter from Villanova saying we're starting a kosher food program. How do we do it? Villanova, University of Vermont, you know, in other words... We, we, want, we, want, we want Jews, so fraternities and sororities became the natural partners of Jews. It's a very, it, it, you know, it, 
we, we entered into a new class and, and to a new state in America. And, 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 and that in many ways just mirrors the transition that Jews have made as a group, as a successful group, as the most successful group uh, in America. The conflict that emerged was what we call today identity politics, the ethnically oppressed against the white oppressors. And it, it also explains something that's been a puzzle for many people, which is why gay, the gay rights people associate and uh, identify with the Palestinians. Even though, and you'll, you know, Israel is the greatest uh, uh, place for liberal, liberal uh, liberalization uh, for the gay, gay, lesbian population, LGBTQ population. It doesn't have anything to do with politics, uh, with that, with Middle Eastern politics, or with the behavior of the Israeli government. It has to do with identity politics, and LGBTQ are oppressed. They therefore associate politically with other, the, with others that are oppressed, and their loyalty is to the principle of who is oppressed. You are out, Jews, and we're together with them. And in many ways, one of the reasons I draw this portrait is to, to, to try to sort of let us understand that in some, to some extent it's independent of, 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 what, of what Israel does or what Israel is. And it's not about the Middle East. It's about Jews. I mean, I, I wrote up this, this, this discourse you were once like us, victims. But now that you've climbed up, you're becoming the most successful group in the U.S., you're no longer with us. In fact, we look around the university and we see your names. Your names are on all the buildings. You are the big donors. The chancellor. Oh, chancellor's Jewish. When there was a problem with the, uh, with, with the Students for Justice in Palestine, having a conference on campus. The chancellor defended them, but you know what? He came to Hillel on Friday night at UCLA. You know, I, I, you know what the difference between the ethnics and the Jews are? When the ethnics have a problem, they protest and they demonstrate. When the Jews have a problem, they go to the chancellor's office and they have a meeting. Not, ne not necessarily the students. They make a phone call, you know, to someone. You know, that, so, so there's, there, there, you know, the, so, the, so the discourse is you climbed up, you became successful, and you're no longer one of us. You turned your back on us to join the ruling class, you know, what, what they call white and privileged, and you're no longer a minority. Now, I, to me, this has been an issue for a while. You know, I, I, I never saw myself as Caucasian. I mean, I don't know what, I mean, I, I, I always say, this is a Caucasian, you know, I'm a Jew. <laughs> And, you know, and you're forced, I, used to, I, taught, I taught for many years at UCLA, so you have to fill out a, a form, a Title IX form, identifying your ethnic group, and the only thing that was left for me was Caucasian, and I used to leave it blank. So the secretary in the department used to fill it in for me. You know, of course, they were required to fill it in. But you know, I felt somehow that we were being thrust into a class against, my, against our will. And, and all this identification to me, I was uncomfortable with it in general. I mean, I'm not, I'm not that, I'm not, I, I, I'm not that at, at peace with 
you know, this, all this need to classify how many of these do we have, how many here do we have. And we, may, we have to make sure to hire one of those. You know, I, 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 maybe, I, you know, I'm a little bit naive in that regard when I thought of us of being a colorblind society, especially at a university, we seem to have greater ethnic consciousness than, and, and greater focus on, you know, on, on, on ethnic origin. Uh, in terms of in terms of identity on the campus, and it's not for good. Meaning, if it would be for good purposes and for enriching ourselves and enlarging ourselves, if multiculturalism were what it was supposed to be, which it was supposed to enrich us because it would make us acquainted with traditions that we have no familiarity with, and would enlarge the scope of our sophistication and our and our and our and our knowledge and our culture, that that that, that I'm all for it. But if multiculturalism becomes a political tool, your part, I was told when I applied to make a presentation at a multicultural conference that was sponsored by the University of New Mexico in a year where there were tensions between blacks and Jews, so I applied to make two presentations at the conference, and initially they were rejected. And the basis of the rejection was Jews are not part of the multicultural agenda. So it was, the conference was in New Orleans, and I wanted to go very badly. So I appealed, and, they, and I went. And you know what I discovered? So I went to the conference. I, I interacted. I saw there were 3,000 participants. Most of them were not academics. Most of them, I think, uh, maybe I'm exaggerating because it's a long time ago, were administrators. And I realized that the universities had already hired a whole mid-level uh, administration who were dedicated to this to this particular diversity agenda, and that it will have political implications because it will become an enclave within the university, a separate enclave in the university, to promote the interests, uh, political interests, of, these, of those groups against everybody else because they define themselves as being against everybody else. That's what happens when you're a victim. There are the bad guys and there are us. So it seems, that's one of the great problems that it seems to me that the universal culture uh, has, has sort of uh, 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 nurtured, and that's the sense of the powerless against the powerful. It's, it's very unfortunate. It manifests itself in, in, in the conflict between the students and, what, what, and, and the goal of this politics. The goal of this politics is to unseat the Jews from their position as having been victims. That's why you get this anti-Semitic stuff denying of Holocaust, diminishing of the importance of the, oh, you think six million died. Well, you know, 40 million died in the African, in the Atlantic crossing, which is an exaggeration. But it's, it's, a, it, 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 it's, it's, itself, it's obscene. It's obscene to have a competition in how many got killed and, and to think of that, you know, that's the nature uh, uh, of the conflicts. But the fact is that we were, we were leaders in the struggles, in these struggles, and basically what we're being taught, you, you, have, you have no role to play. Jewish students write about this. Progressive Jewish students who are Zionists write about the fact that they're being excluded from participating in progressive movements on campus because they're, to they're told that, you know, that, that, that they, they, they have no place. They just have no place. And it's inappropriate for them to actually to come forward. There's, they're, 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 they're are, these are bad things that are going on. But underlying it is what I'm calling the politics of resentment. It's a resentment towards the fact that it seems to me that Jews are perceived to be of another, uh, to have moved into a different class and without the same fundamental concerns for justice 
that are necessary, in, uh, you know, to build, to, to, to rebuild the society. And, the, and the, the, the prejudice against Israel is because Israel is seen as the greatest symbol of Jewish success and power. And Jews are seen as being a group of, a powerful and influential group. That, that so, runs contrary to the story that we told ourselves for so many years. Because we were raised to believe that we were powerless and that we would discriminate against. And the perception in the world, in the wide world out there, especially among these groups, is on the contrary, that we are the most powerful group and the most influential group. The truth is more complicated, and it's very hard to transmit this truth. And that's one of the difficulties, that we can be victims and powerful simultaneously. But we have to own up to the fact that we're also powerful. We don't like to talk about that. We, the people who describe us as being powerful, we call them anti-Semites. And we don't say any, we don't like to talk about it ourselves because we shushka. Someone may hear us. You know, they, you know, they won't know that Hollywood is run by Jews, right? right? They won't know that. I mean, wh wh what are we talking about? Everybody knows everything. You know, so Neil Gabler wrote a book, How the Jews Invented Hollywood. So, so you talk about it. It's not, an, it's not evil. It's a cultural, there's some, I mean, Hollywood made some great contributions to America. Why were Jews involved in Hollywood? What were they trying to do? Were they trying to manipulate people? You know, what happened? There are many interesting stories to be told about all of this, but not in this polarized political manner. Blacks have a perception that Jews exploited them, right? Because blacks wrote music, and Jews were the business managers who made all the money. Part of the story is that Jews were among the few people willing to listen to blacks. So they heard the music. They value jazz. I mean, it, it, it's complicated. And some of it is true. And, 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 and there's, also, there's also a very, I think, a very, uh, uh, a very dignified story to be told about cultural mediation and, 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 and achievement in America. Uh, regard. But, but we're, we're, we're very far removed from this. And, and it, it's, de it's degenerated. All right, so I, I do have to bring things to a close. And maybe if you have some questions, I'll take a couple questions. There are things that can be done on campus that I think are, are, are very important, and there are things that need to be done in the Jewish community. Let me start off with the Jewish community. The Jewish community doesn't, doesn't help matters out on campus when it sticks its nose in the campus business. We're too involved. And we don't understand, I'm telling you as someone who's a campus worker, we don't understand the, uh, the, the nuances and, 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 and the subtleties of, of, of campus culture. Um, and we don't negotiate it well. We, 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 we approach with a heavy hand. Um, and, and, and every anti-Israel speaker is not an anti-Semite. Um, I think we know that, but you know, it's, 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 it's hard to differentiate when, you come, when, when, you know, when you're filing complaints and when you're also getting involved in legal maneuvers that are very problematic. I don't agree with bringing the government involved into this at all, un unless it's the most extreme case. It only complicates matters. And when we bring the government in and we legislate to defend, you know, to, to, to de decree BDS to be unlawful, it seems to me that one of the achievements is, maybe not the only achievement, is that we're me merely feeding the perception that Jews uh, have a lot of power and influence and they're able to get legislators to do things for them. 
Uh, I don't know what purpose it serves. We, st we don't know what purpose it serves. There are d there's a difference, by the way, between boycott that are actually economic boycotts and boycott when it has to do with, with movements on campus and, 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 what, and what it actually means. By and large, BDS has failed on campus as a movement. It causes a lot of trouble, and some Jewish students are now concluding that rather than waste their time in fighting it, they, could use, they can use their time more, more positively and proactively and at the end of the fight, they're exhausted, and, and, and both sides feel as if, you know, they've been, you know, so, uh, they, they, somehow uh, they've been decimated by the process, and nothing good has, has emerged. Um, so, you know, there are people who are rethinking, rethinking strategies. The Jewish community strategy is fight and defeat them. To me, by the way, the people to attract and to influence are not the hardliners on the other side. They're not going to listen to us. It's the third party who's observing this conflict and says a curse on both your houses. I have, experience, I have some experience with that. I have experience with people on campus who are interested in saying, tell me something positive. What vision do you have that's different from the conflict? We have a vision. Israel had a vision. It was called a two-state solution. We don't talk about that anymore, right? Because the Israeli government doesn't talk about it. The Jewish community doesn't talk about it. When you talked about the two-state solution and you could come to campus and say, I have a way. I'm ready to work with the other side. Tell me, you know, and, and, you know, and, I, I'm, I, you know, and I, I, I'm, a, I'm a veteran of this, so it's easier for me. You know, I can tell them, okay, look, I don't agree with the occupation. No one likes to say that. I say that openly. So they, oh, you know, oh. okay. But you know what? They're terrorists in your camp. How are we going to work this out? We need security, and we need somehow to achieve some understanding. No one talks like that. I'm part of an academic group that talks that way. They're a small group, and no one works with them. They're academics who, they're, they're academics who are against BDS. It's a labor Zionist group, labor Zionist. Very, some very prominent academics, right? So they're against BDS, and they fight against BDS. They're also against the occupation. And you know they have credibility. I, tr I proposed this group as a natural ally to Hillel. There was a conversation that I organized, a conference called Stum. Nothing, nothing. No, because no, politically, people's hands are tied, and they can't move. But, you know, we're on campus. The campus is a liberal place. You can't win the campus with conservative techniques. I always, I always tell myself, we're supposed to be a smart people. I don't care what your political position is. If you care about Israel, you want to present Israel in good light. So you can't be purely ideological. It's not about your ideology. It's about what people want to hear, in part. And you're not lying when you say that there's a segment of the Jewish population that's for reconciliation and for resolution. It was a policy. So we lost, we lost you know, so that's, that's, that's one thing, how to change the conversation. How to, how to push aside some of the extremist behavior that's introduced from outside, from outside the university, sometimes from within the university. I think the university needs to address the conflict more directly. I, I've been saying this to administrators for 25 years. Every major university has professors who are earning lots of money doing conflict resolution all over the world. It's about time that the university utilized its talent at home. 
and asked its professors, who are experts in conflict resolution, to work with groups that don't know how to work with one another and try to resolve the tensions in a constructive way so that they disagree with each one, each one another respectfully. It's a campus. Why can't you create some conversation on campus? And you have people who do this, I say, professionally. The psychologist should study the negative consequences of allowing a whole population of students to develop an identity based on being victims. You know what it means to see yourself as a victim? It means everybody else is against you, and you, can't, you have no agency to do anything to, to rectify your position because you have no power and you have no influence. And by the way, you can't do anything wrong because you're a victim. So victims, so they say, ah, well, we can't be anti-Semites. They hate us. Everybody hates us. So you can't accuse us of hating anybody else. You know? I mean, it, it, it's, not, it's nonsense. And it's destructive. The, the nature of a, of a of, I, I, and, and I don't believe, by the way, for instance, that all Latino or Hispanic students have a sense of being victims. I see the difference. I know what's going on on campus. There are a group of politicos who are involved in all of this. But, but they need to be, it needs to be addressed. Because it's unhealthy to nurture a, popu a population of students who see themselves as being victims. Especially, I look at UCLA, I want to look at them in the face and say, tell me something. Every single one of you, no matter what your backgrounds and what, whatever, whatever your parents were able to provide you, you're at UCLA. You're among the privileged in America today. Know that. So what are you going to do about creating opportunities for yourselves and for others? instead of just feeling sorry for yourselves, politically, and angry, sorry and angry. It's, it's, it's unhealthy. So the university has something that seems to be really significant to do. And then we need to ask ourselves, as a, as a, as a, as a community, whether we have really been there in the last 20 or 30 years for those in America, for the have-nots in America, like we once were when we were struggling. Not because we don't care, but because it, it simply we sort of grew a little distant from the basic grassroots issues. So that it sort of falls on deaf ears when we tell our, stud our, our students to tell the campus, remember the days when we were active in the civil rights movement. It's kind of lame. It's true, Rabbi Heschel marched with Martin Luther King. And Martin Luther King was, you know, was a supporter of Israel. It's all true. But history went on. And we really galloped ahead. And other communities, you know, made, made, made limited gains. Some, in fact, you know, there are, there are not good stories to be told. We used to be involved, I remember being involved when, when Los Angeles had a, had a community relations committee. We have no community relations committee. We were involved in, state, in the state education system. Do we care about public education in America? We don't, because our children go to private schools. But public education is where it's at for most Americans. So that's the part, that's the, that's the aspect. We have a responsibility. I mean, it's, it's a tough life to be Jewish because we have responsibility as Jews and to the Jewish community, to the state of Israel, but we also have a responsibility to America. And we have some Jewish values that could inform our involvement in American Jewish life. You know, Rabbi Shmuley is trying to push himself in all directions to make sure that he's, you know, that somehow he's stretched beyond being who he is. So you have to help him out. 
because you want him to, to but, but, but it's a challenge. His life, his life is a challenge to us and asks us a question. How are we going to make this Judaism relevant to our, to, in the present day so that it's meaningful on, at a whole range of living questions that have to do not only with the survival of Jews, but with the survival of our, of our American society, as well as the survival of Israel, as, as, as centers of, of, of justice for, for all people. And believe me, we have a lot to say about that agenda, and I think that that can be very exciting for a young group of American Jews who are looking for, looking for involvement. Thank you. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklewitz. I hope you enjoyed listening to this fascinating lecture. At VBM, we strive to bring you only the best in Jewish educational programming. To do this, we host a wide variety of events throughout our learning season, including panels, classes, and lectures, like the one you just listened to. Please consider going to www.valleybetmidrash.org and donating to VBM to support meaningful Jewish education in the greater Phoenix Jewish community, indeed all around the country and the world. Thank you so much for listening.